All right, Mark chapter 9. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, it goes from verse 38 to 50. I've cut it in half because there's so much to talk at the end. Next week, we'll, uh, next week we'll talk a lot about hell. Not a great commercial, but that's what's going to happen. Jesus talks about it uh, from verse 42 to the end of the passage. This week, we see Jesus giving instruction about narrow-mindedness, about discernment. We'll talk about that this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning verse 38, read down to verse 41. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the word of our God. Let's begin verse 38. <clears throat> John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Join me as we pray. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you'll help us. God, that you would help every man and woman, every student, boy and girl. God, we need the Holy Spirit of God to sustain, to heal, to, re, to, to return the joy, to bring it back, to remind us. God, I pray that, that the gospel would be spoken in such a way that it would be understood and believed today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. Many of you sitting here today are on some kind of social media. A lot of us on Facebook. I know you're on Facebook. I see what you post. Been posting lots of pictures over Christmas. Honestly, for all the negative things that you could say about social media and about Facebook, and there are legion, you could say a whole lot that's negative, there are a couple of positive things. Love seeing everybody's family pictures, Christmas pictures, and travel and activities. I've enjoyed seeing the dads that actually did wear the family pajamas in front of the Christmas tree. In my heart, ridiculing you for doing that. There's another good feature on Facebook that I really like. It's the memories feature. Memories Brings it, Facebook will show you just what you were doing, what you posted this exact day a year ago or two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago. The memories portion, portion shows you all kind of things. I, the problem I have with it just personally that I have, uh, I, I've, I do the same thing. It's discouraging. Like I can see a picture or a post from last year the very same day that I was doing the exact same thing. I have about four things that I've posted pictures of, uh, usually a car or a truck, a dog, a book I'm reading, or lifting weights. And I feel like, is that all I've done with my life? You look deeper in the pictures, it's not that you're not changing. You look at the pictures, you actually find out that you are changing. You look at the pictures from five years ago. Or 10 years ago, there was a whole lot less gray in my beard on the side of my head. 
Like, what are you people doing to me? Or there's sometimes, sometimes John Stigmerton will pop up in my memories. Ten years ago, ten years ago, John had hair. <laughs> what are y'all doing to John? You look at the pictures, and over the course of time, you don't feel yourself changing. I don't feel like I've changed that much, but you can actually look at the pictures and see you are changing. Now, what is true for us when it comes to memory section on Facebook it's true for the disciples if you look over the span of the 50 years that the New Testament was written. And this morning in chapter 9, verse 38, what we have there is a little snapshot, a picture, a still in time of a man named John. And it is not a flattering picture. Now, we've been away from the Gospel of Mark for some time now. I won't recap the entire Gospel Let's just get to chapter 9, and let me just recap what is going on in chapter 9, because this story is told in the context of something that has happened. In chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples, three of them that are closest to him, were on the mountain of transfiguration. That's how chapter 9 opens up. Peter, James, and John gone up on the mountain with Jesus. He is changed right in front of them. They've never seen him like that. It is a glorious picture of how Jesus will show his glory. They see that. They come down off the mountain, and down when they get at the bottom of the mountain, the other disciples left at the bottom of the mountain have been trying to cast out a demon. They were not able to do it. Jesus gives them some lessons on what it looked like to cast out demons. When they start going into Capernaum or walking along the road, the 12 disciples have a discussion among themselves, and they're trying to figure out which one of them is the greatest. That's what was happening right before verse 38. And in this, 30, in, in, this, in this passage, in verse 38, in this passage, when you look at John and what he says, he feels narrow and cliquish and judgmental. And if that is all you knew, if verse 38 is all you knew of the apostle John, then you would not have a great picture of him. This snapshot is not a great one. But what we have is the rest of the Bible and church history. We know that in church history and the rest of the Bible, John would grow into the beloved disciple. He would be used by God. He would write the Gospel of John. He would write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Revelation. We, knew, we know that so many of those disciples lived faithfully. They, many of them died gloriously, are spending Eternity with Jesus. So what happened from this point, chapter 9, verse 38, to the end of John's life to create a change? I think this passage gives us the first steps of being useful to God and the gospel. And today, at the beginning of the year, the first Sunday of 2024, I want to use this passage to help set a course for the next 52 weeks in my life and in your life and hopefully for the rest of our lives. Because the truth of the matter is, this can be the theme of the sermon, we need, we need disciplined minds and willing hearts. We need disciplined minds, willing hearts. There's a whole lot to see in this passage. 
Many things you can point out. Some of them you'll see yourself. Let's begin with the most basic. Here's the first one. Number one, we need discipleship. We need discipleship. Look, if you, if you could just make up your mind this morning, right now, that you need to grow as a Christian man or a Christian woman. And if you could see that God has put you in this church at this moment in time with an excellent opportunity to grow. I want you to see the energy in verse 38. Join me there. Verse 38. <clears throat> Let me read it and you follow and I'll come back and talk about it. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. A couple of things to point out. <clears throat> this is the very first time, the only time that <clears throat> Mark, the writer of this gospel, takes a spotlight. How would you like it? Takes a spotlight and puts it on John. Only time in the whole Bible we see that. And it is not a flattering picture. This is not a good day to put the spotlight on John. Because the scene is, in verse 38, the scene is that John and the disciples came upon somebody they did not know, a man that was casting out demons and doing so in the authority of Jesus and doing so in the name of Jesus and doing so successfully. Now we know, according to verse 38, this man was not a part of the 12. He wasn't in not just the three, he wasn't part of the 12. He wasn't in their group. But he must have been a believer. Maybe he was from Luke chapter 10. Jesus sent out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. Maybe he was one of those. We don't know. But whoever he was, he was actually succeeding. Now, because of what we understand how miracles work, there are not miracle workers. There's only one miracle worker. That is God. He does it through people. So what we do know is this unnamed person in verse 38 that's causing all the trouble, is casting out demons, he's a believer. That didn't keep John from not, that didn't keep John from disliking him. Verse 38 says, John told Jesus, we saw him doing that and we told him to stop. Look at why, verse 38. Why? Because he was not one of us. Now, take a close look at John here. I want to take a close look at John. I'm doing that because I think Mark has done that on purpose. I want to take a close look at the man who will write the Gospel of John, who will write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, who will write the Revelation. How did he become that man from this man? This man is narrow and judgmental and resentful. How did he come from here to being the beloved disciple? I want to think about that and then, then maybe reverse engineer. Maybe think of some things that might be helpful for us. I mean, right here in verse 38, he's not developed yet. We find him cliquish. We find him judgmental. We find him resenting success. Because earlier in chapter 9, the disciples themselves couldn't cast out a demon. Now here's this person we don't even know is doing it. This fits... Verse 38 fits with what do we, what we already know about John. Let's think, some of you have been to church a long time. We know some things about the apostle John. What do we know? <clears throat> well, we know that he and his brother had somehow gotten the name Sons of Thunder. 
That was their nickname. Now, you don't get the nickname Sons of Thunder because you like to catch butterflies. Something had to happen. We don't know what it is, but they had, did, they had done something. They had an attitude. Something gave them the moniker Sons of Thunder. Maybe it was their mom. I say her mom because John chapter 20, James and John's mom, she's the one who went to Jesus and said, look, when you come into your kingdom, I've got the best ambassadors you have. James, I want you to put James on your left hand, put John on your right hand. She asked Jesus for that. James and John, they would be those two that would argue about who the greatest is. We know that about John. Or, or, or think about this. <laughs> Luke chapter 9 Luke chapter 9, all of the disciples and Jesus are going through Samaria. They're trying to convert the Samaritans. They're preaching there. And the Samaritans don't want anything to do with what they're saying. And John doesn't like it a bit. So in John chapter 9, verse 54, I mean, I mean Luke chapter 9, verse 54, John says to Jesus, why don't we call down hellfire on these people? That's what he wanted to do. That's the kind of man we're talking about here. He sees somebody doing something that he doesn't understand and he thinks that person should stop. John's life is stuck in a cage. Some of you understand the phrase cage stage. Cage stage is when you, you get a hold of some truth that you didn't know before and you wonder, people at church don't know this and you think they don't know that, then they're all going to hell. And that's what we got with John right here. I'd like to offer up some truth. What happened in John's life to take him from Mark chapter 9, verse 38, to being the beloved disciple used by God? I think there are some, some suggestions that might be helpful for all of us. Here's the first one. What would happen after chapter 9? The first one is the cross. The cross. It is the defining moment for all of us as men and women. And you go to the cross and there you understand that Jesus, the Son of God, takes the wrath of God for you as a substitute. When you, when you deal with the information and the truth of what has happened at the cross of Jesus, John had to be there. John was there when it happened. He saw it happen. John will be an eyewitness to the resurrection. He will see the ascension. But what changed him dramatically will be the cross. Have you been there and been changed by the cross. Something else would change, John. <clears throat> we call it the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. Here's what I mean. We understand as Christians, the religion that we adhere to is one of grace. We don't work and do good things so that God will bless us and love us. We live and do good things because God does. Bless us and love us. We don't work toward grace. We work from grace. When the gospel of grace gets a hold of you, you understand the sin and the sinner that you are, the wretched man or woman that you are, and yet God has loved you in Christ and saved you and redeemed you. When you were sinking down, he reached in and got you and pulled you out. You understand grace. You are much more likely to extend grace to other people. John hadn't experienced it here yet. He will, and it'll change him. What else about John? John would encounter the Word. 
When, when he opens up his gospel, how does he open it? He says, the word became flesh. He, he does a play on words using that word. He'll reach back and understand that the word is spoken, the word is written, and the word is living, which is Christ. He'll be steeped in the word. John knew the Bible. For you to grow as a Christian, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to learn the Bible. Those of us here that believe in Christ and believe the Bible, we believe that God has spoken to us through a book. We are people of the book. And you as a Christian, for you to grow, you'll have to have some sort of grasp beginning today on what does the Bible say to you. You know what else helped John? What else helped John was the church, the fellowship of believers, gathering together from all walks of life. I thank God for our church. I thank God that he has given us all walks of life, all ages, all backgrounds, all colors. And I thank God for that. Because we come together and there, it's not one person's agenda. It is the gospel that has drawn us together. We've not set up a focus group and said everybody be like that. We've lifted up the name of Jesus and we've run to Christ. Look, you need the church. You need people in your life that have been redeemed by the grace of God, found at the cross, worshiping together, being strengthened together. One of the things that John will miss when he is exiled on the island of Patmos is the Lord's Day gathering with the church. He had the church. You know what else he had? He had hard, he had hard providences. Hard providences. I say hard providences because part of our theology is we believe that God is in control of all things, that he has a plan for all of his creation. He is working that plan. And all of the things that have happened, as tragic and painful and terrible as they might be, they somehow are woven like a tapestry into the plan of God. So that all that you've walked through this year, a hard providence, we believe that God uses that that he uses that to soften us and, and sand us down and humble us and give us patience and, and extend grace to people. So, so it, what happened in John's life? What can we learn for your discipleship this year? Number one, you need the gospel. You need the gospel. You need to love the gospel and apply the gospel of Jesus to every part of your life. Cram it into every crevice of your brain, the gospel of Jesus. You need to come to grips with grace and love grace and, and swim in the ocean of grace so that you become a person that extends grace, that you are gracious to other people because you know what God has done for you. You need to be a student of the Word, a woman that loves the Bible, that you consume the Bible, that you are saturated with the Bible. You need to be a man gets up in the morning and spends time in the Word before you see anybody else's face, you're seeing this that it's becoming who you are and you're growing as a Christian. You need to see what God has given us as a gathering to support is the church. That the church of Jesus Christ, it is the body of Christ. Why would you ever not gather with God's people to come and worship and lift up the name of Jesus to be encouraged and to be strengthened, to be prayed for, to be taken care of and to take care of others? There's a word that... Um, there's a word that was brought to my attention <clears throat> this week. I'm reading a book called Character Matters. 
is written for pastors, written by a pastor for pastors. Reading's been very helpful to me. I just, I don't know, I just enjoyed reading it. And one of the things this, this author says is that we live in the nevertheless, nevertheless. What he means by that is that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asking the Father to take this cup from me. Remember that? Praying, take, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Some of the greatest discipleship moments are when you learn to live in the nevertheless. We need it. We need discipleship. Let me show you something else we need from verse 39. We not only need discipleship, we need discernment. Discernment. We need to be able to tell what is true, what is false. We need to know what is right and what is, what is wrong. Look, in this passage, what's going on is they wanted to, the disciples, including John, wanted to stop this stranger in verse 38. Now look at the rebuke that Jesus gives them in verse 39. Let me read it to you, verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. Here's the reason. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So, so here's what's going on. <clears throat> John and the disciples are being unnecessarily narrow in their view of how God works and what the kingdom of God is. Now, as a rule, we don't want to be more restrictive than Moses or more open-minded than Paul. What we do want to have are discerning minds. Look, especially especially as the days that we live in get more and more evil. And Jesus gives, the, Jesus gives what I think is a prescription in verse 39 that will lead to verse 40. Verse 39, Jesus, let me just read it and maybe expand while you're looking at it. Verse 39, no one who is filled with the Spirit, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our triune God, the Holy Spirit comes into a believer. That's how you believe. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. No one who is that kind of believer, filled with the Spirit, who does a mighty work. You see that word mighty work? It's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get dynamite. Who has a powerful work. No one who is filled with the Spirit and does a powerful work. We believe that the miracle worker is God. He works through people. No one who does a miracle work, a miracle like that, a powerful work, by my name, with my authority, which means with my blessings, will then soon speak evil of me. Remember now the work of God. The work is God's work. It is God's work. And if God is doing the work through someone and that someone is bringing glory to Christ through what God is doing, then that person is with us. The same spirit that brings a work the same spirit, according to what Jesus says, that makes a mighty work possible will give the right words to speak. Say it another way. Let me say it another way. The same spirit that does ministry, that is using someone for ministry, will do a miraculous work of conversion so that there is saving faith and that person will say, Jesus is Lord. Or the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, Therefore I want you to understand 
that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if that's the case, then what do we do? How can we tell? What do we do as believers? Two, two sides. One side, we appreciate and embrace any ministry that is authentic. It's authentically Christian. We appreciate and embrace authentic ministry when we find it. That is one thing we do. The other thing is we distance ourselves from heresy when we see it. We get away from it. We embrace that which is authentic. We distance ourselves from that which is heretical. How do we do that? Well, we need discernment, which, which the two go together, which drives me to the third point. To have discernment, we need this third point. Number three, we need good doctrine. Good doctrine. Good doctrine. Doctrine like a, doctrine's like riverbanks. That river in the banks needs the banks to keep it compressed so that it flows. If a river doesn't have banks, it becomes a pond. Doctrine, riverbanks, it keeps the spirit moving, direction, we must have it. And in verse 40, Jesus gives a second reason why the 12 disciples, including John, should not have rebuked that man. Let me show it to you in verse 40. It's a, let me back up, don't look yet. Verse 40 is a proverbial statement. Verse 40 is saying more than it appears to be saying at first glance. In verse 40, you don't feel it because it's so positive. In verse 40, Jesus is dividing the world into two camps. This is what he'll say. Those who are for us, those who are against us. All right, let me read it. <clears throat> for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, that can be easily misunderstood. In our day and time, you think, okay, if, if they're not, if they're just neutral, the one who is not, the one who is not against us is for us. And that is really, you have to take what Jesus has said here in a proverbial statement, us and them, and take what else Jesus has said in the same way. Think of it this way. Here he says it positively. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he says it in the negative. Sometimes you need to hear it negatively to understand it better. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So what you have here is one coin, two sides of one coin. So if you take those two together, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that there is absolutely no neutrality with him. There is no such thing as fence riding. There is no way to have one foot in Christ and one in the world. What Jesus has said, them or us, there is no neutrality. There's no way for you to live your life, call yourself a Christian, and live like the world. When you take Jesus on as Savior, He is Lord. 
And to be Lord means he rules. Here Jesus has, has lifted it up, one coin. So, so my question then is how do, we, uh, how do we know who is Christian, who is not? I think it's vital for us to have a, a substance, a doctrinal substance, especially in the days ahead, to have good doctrine. And over the years, I have found a really good tool that has helped me out. First heard it from Dr. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary. It's called the theological triage. Theological triage. We don't, we don't want to be more narrow than Jesus himself, but we do want to have good doctrine. And I have found that the theological triage has helped me to, to separate what is essential, what is non-essential. In a theological triage, you have three levels. First order doctrine, second order doctrine, and third order doctrine. First order, first order doctrines are those doctrines in the theological triage. First order doctrines are those doctrines that you must believe to be considered a Christian. Those things are such as the full deity of Christ, that he is fully God. Or the true humanity of Jesus, that he is fully human. Or the Trinity, that our God has revealed himself as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or justification by faith alone, that God has saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone. Or in the authority of Scripture, that God speaks to us through his infallible Word. We sang it today. You, you sang the Apostles' Creed today. A denial of any of those things is a denial of Christianity. That's a first order. Those are the essentials of what we must believe. There are second order doctrines. The second order doctrines are those which create denominations. We might have a difference of opinion on something like baptism. Here at Hickory Grove, we believe that the Bible teaches that the time of baptism is after conversion, not just the time. We believe that the mode of baptism is in water all the way under, just as Jesus baptized, was baptized. We believe that's how you ought to be baptized. However, we would say there are brilliant brothers and sisters in Christ doing great ministry that don't believe that. For instance, take Christ's covenant and Matthews, Kevin DeYoung is a friend of mine. I think he's a great author and a great preacher and a great theologian. We disagree here. It is a second order. It doesn't mean one's a Christian, one is not. Both faithful Christians, we disagree, but we disagree to the point we are in different denominations or churches. There are things like the Lord's Supper, um, gender roles in ministry, baptism. Those would be second order doctrines. There are third order doctrines. Third order doctrines are differences of opinion within the church. For instance, it might be something like matters of conscience or, or how you understand a passage. If you're in community group and a difficult passage comes up in the Bible, one has one opinion, one has the other. It's not enough to divide over or maybe how we understand the end of time. People in the same church sitting in this church can have a difference of opinion, but that level of difference doesn't rise to the point of separation. We can joyfully 
worship together even though we disagree on something. That's good doctrine. First, second, third level doctrines. Good doctrine begins with what Jesus is saying right here. It begins with him. Look, I want you to know him. I want you to know the joy uh, and security of forgiveness in Christ. I want you to know the, the gospel. I, I, I give it to you every Sunday. I'll do it again today. But the gospel is, is God. It's about God, our holy creator, who created all of us in his image. And the image of God that is in you has been disfigured by our own sin. We sin willfully. We do it on purpose. Sometimes we do it by mistake, but, but we sin. And that sin is an offense to God. An offense to the degree that he will judge with wrath and fury. It's what the Bible teaches that God will judge every sinner. We stand under condemnation, but that is not where God leaves us. The gospel says that God has loved us in Christ. He gives us Jesus who is fully God, full deity, and fully man. Jesus lives perfectly, the perfect man, and goes to the cross and takes all the wrath, his deity, he's the only one that could do it, takes all the wrath so that every bit of judgment that will ever be judged on any sinner that will ever be saved is poured out on Jesus. And his righteousness that he earned as the perfect man is yours. So here's what happens when you become a Christian. You believe Jesus died in your place. God killed his son instead of killing you. And you take on the righteousness. You are saved by the righteousness of Christ and not your own. That right there is doctrine. And you get that through discipleship. Look, we need, we need disciplined minds and willing hearts, but they got to go somewhere. And that's my last point in verse 41. I'll end it here. We need, we need devotion. Devotion. Something has to happen. Look how Jesus closes it out. Verse 41. For truly, that's one of those verily, verily statements. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You know what's striking to me? I just, I'll just close with this. What's striking to me about this little verse right here in verse, four, verse 41 is this is a simple act of hospitality. It's not some grand ministry. It's just doing something kind for someone because of Christ. You understand that all of this discipleship and all of this discernment, having good doctrine as our foundation, those are not a means to an end. All that is going somewhere. It's going to here, to verse 41. All of that discipline, discipleship, and discernment, and doctrine, it must play out in devotion. It must play out in a life lived in simple, everyday devotion to the Lord Jesus. That really does take a disciplined mind and a willing heart. As 2024 begins, it's a good time for you to commit your life to discipleship that shows up as devotion. This morning with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, and we go to the Lord in a few moments of commitment in prayer.
as we close today, I'd like to reflect on, I'd like to reflect on where we are and what needs to change. God changed John, and he'll change you. What needs to change? We sing this morning, if you'd like to come and pray, I would invite you to do so. If you'd like to come and dedicate this year to the Lord, just symbolically, just pray and ask God to help you. If you'd like to come and talk to one of our pastors, they're all in the front row, can pray with you and talk to you about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Let's begin this year with our focus on the goodness of God found in Christ. Father, we thank you for the word that you give us. We thank you for the love that you've shown us. We thank you for your spirit that is in us. Find us faithful, Lord. As a church, find us faithful. Help us as we move forward. Help your people. Do your work now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together?